You're listening to the Urban Historians Podcast. I'm Lily Geismer. And I'm Andrew Needham. Today we're talking with Elaine Lewinick about Chicago's early suburbs and the roots of economic diversity and suburban sprawl. The recent events in Ferguson have brought national attention to the economic and racial diversity of suburbs, echoing stories urban historians have told for years. A new generation of scholars has created path-breaking studies that have shown that suburban America is far from the monolithic place depicted in Revolutionary Road or Leave it to Beaver. Instead, they've demonstrated the racial and class diversity of suburbs, as well as the unequal distribution of resources and power across metropolitan America. Our guest today, Elaine Lewinick, has pushed that story back even further. In Working Man's Reward, Chicago's Early Suburbs and the Roots of American Sprawl, recently published by Oxford University Press, Elaine calls attention to Chicago's often overlooked early suburban fringe. Her book draws on a rich range of sources, and she rereads familiar events and issues such as the Great Fire of 1872, Upton Sinclair's novel The Jungle, and the city's 1919 race riots to show how they were influenced by the ideologies and experiences of those who built suburban Chicago and those who lived there. By examining and reconstructing both the physical development of Chicago and notions of home ownership that built the city, Working Man's Reward provides a very timely opportunity to reconsider alternatives to the current shape and idea of American suburbia. Elaine Luenick, welcome to the Urban History Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we first just wanted you to talk a little bit about your book. I feel like you guys already did a terrific job. I'm not sure what I should add. It participates in the new suburban history, but it pushes it back earlier. It starts in the post-Civil War period in Chicago, and it looks at all the people who moved out of town, not just the gentleman commuters and not just the suburban housewives, but also the factories that moved out of town and the workers who followed the factories. It looks at pressures to suburbanize both from the top down and from the bottom up. So the title, The Working Man's Reward, comes from an advertisement from one of Chicago's huge developers, Samuel Eberly Gross. And this was an advertisement in the 1890s. The Working Man's Reward signifies that people were shifting from identities based around production to identities based around consumption. And that consumerist version of suburbia is suggested in The Working Man's Reward. But for workers, it wasn't always only consumerist. Their houses were also productive spaces. Spaces. They had small businesses, they took in borders, they grew small gardens in their backyards. They had all sorts of strategies for making money from their houses that eventually evolved into strategies for hoping for rising property values, and they eventually got racialized. So the, the phrase worker itself sometimes is code for a white man. And I think that Working Man's Reward was subtly suggesting that the homeowners are all white men and white families. This was a developing discourse that, that grew in the early 20th century in Chicago. So I see these diverse suburbs that were for workers, that were consumerist, but also producerist, and also eventually racialized. And my book traces that story of Chicago's diverse early sprawl. How did you find yourself writing about Chicago? And uh, tell us kind of about how the project developed from its early stages as a dissertation. So I grew up in Boston. I grew up in Newton, which is a, a classic streetcar suburb. And so even when I was an undergrad, Ken Jackson's book of Crabgrass Frontier just meant so much to me because it's talking about my town and explaining where I live. And so I got interested in, in really what is this diversity within suburbs, but I didn't want to just study myself. And so the next book was Paul Groth's book, Living Downtown, about single room occupancy hotels in San Francisco. I don't know if anyone reads this anymore, but it's this really terrific book that he wrote after he was involved in trying to save single room occupancy places for the elderly 
in San Francisco. And he wrote about pressures to own your own home. And everybody he was quoting, it felt like was Chicagoans, turn of the century Chicagoans. And so that led me to be interested in what was going on in Chicago that made these pressures for homeownership. And at first I kind of fell into that probably typical grad student mistake of believing that it was it was just this this terrible conspiracy to get everybody in debt and going to work more. I think that definitely is a strain, but I I gradually figured out workers are not passive. They had their own reasons for wanting houses. And so the third thing that led me into this was Samuel Eberly Gross's advertisement, because I was in Dolores Hayden's class at Yale. And one of the things Dolores emphasizes is that you have to always look at maps. And so we were reading all these classic histories of suburbs and the working man's reward kept on showing up. It's such an amazing ad. And yet nobody looked at the address and the address is on the bottom of the ad. It says 47th and Ashland Ave. And so Dolores told me, look at the address. And I did. And that's the gate yard to the stockyards. And so I couldn't figure out how that is. You know, this classic suburban ad is also a place where, where blood is running in the streets, where, where the saloons are. This is the jungle, but it's a suburb. And so that led me into this whole project of just, just trying to tell people like, no, wait, it's the jungle. You know, the, the flies were so thick in August that you couldn't see the colors of the houses below the flies. The ad's on the cover of your book. Now, it is. It's an amazing ad of an angel bringing the home at $10 a month to this tired worker who's got his pail and his pick and shovel just kind of sitting there on a stoop. That That is the gate yards to the gigantic stockyards in Chicago is really amazing. Yeah, and all you have to do is actually look at the original because you just flip the page and it says, I'm in my new city subdivision and you can go home for lunch. That's what the ad is showing. You don't have to have your lunch in this bleak cement landscape. You can go to this more domesticated place. And But then there's pictures that show the houses that don't look anything like what the angel promised. And so that the American dream was this immigrant design dream and it does not, doesn't always deliver on its promise. That just led me into Chicago sources. And I was a little naive because I thought, oh, Chicago, how great, there's all these sources. And I didn't realize there's also all these authors. People publish books on Chicago almost as often as they publish books on the Civil War. And so keeping up with all the new scholarship and, and, and figuring out how I fit in, because I had this great insight before I'd even read Richard Harris or Becky Nicolaitis or, or Robert Self or all the new suburban historians. And, and then it was great to realize a lot of other people are also figuring out that suburbs have been diverse from the beginning, although I see an earlier beginning than, than some of them. Did you end up moving to Chicago to do the research for the dissertation? I didn't. I have to confess this. I, I didn't move to Chicago. I spent a couple summers there. And so I was very pleased when you complimented my book for deep archival research, because really it's interlibrary loan. You know, there are so many sources that you can get through interlibrary loan. And some of them are just amazing. One of Chicago's early historians is Bessie Louise Pierce. And I never did find out who she was and how, how you become a historian when you're a woman in, the, in 1930s Chicago. But she did all sorts of projects in the 30s, including this New Deal project to hire people to translate Chicago's foreign language press. And she got all these different speakers of Czech and Yiddish and Polish and Lithuanian to translate the press. And then she sorted it by her research agenda. And it's all on microfiche. You can get it anywhere in the world now. So there's a lot of things like that that you, you can get from Chicago libraries without being in Chicago. Wow, that's amazing that you managed to do this via the U.S. mail at the time, right? 
<laughs> well, there was a lot of, uh, you know, two whole summers. Yeah spent in, in the Chicago Historical Society and the Newberry Library and, and, and the University of Chicago's deep, deep basements, you know, um, that I had to be there to discover that, oh, there were a lot of grad students who wrote dissertations on Chicago in the 1920s and 30s. And those dissertations have amazing, amazing data in them that that was really fun to discover and to say, oh my goodness, this man, Lewis Copeland, nobody paid attention to him at the time, but he was so visionary. And it was nice to be able to reproduce that. For my book, I tried to track down his heirs to ask for permission to republish his hand-drawn maps. I still haven't found his heirs. And, and, and I feel badly about that because I want to tell them, you know, your grandfather or great-grandfather did this really interesting work and we're republishing it now. Thank God for Robert Park, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and all of his students, really. Yeah, no, that's you know? right. That's right. That's right. So when you were doing the research, what was the most surprising or entertaining thing that you discovered, you know, in the process of reading all of these newspapers and different maps and, and old dissertations and um, let's see, there's a bunch of things, um, because finding those old dissertations, and they're all in one place, and the library shelves hook together like trains, and you have to unhook them, and you're the only one deep in the basement, and you feel like nobody's looked at this stuff for so long. When I tried to track down his heirs, I wrote to the University of Chicago Alumni Association, thinking, you know, the, the Alumni Association usually can give you a last known address. They didn't even have all these people written down as graduates. They had to go back and fix their records. You know, these... So, <laughs> You raised you raised like fifty thousand dollars for the University of Chicago, and I don't really know because these I couldn't actually find these people, but they're now officially listed as graduates, you know, because their dissertations are there in Regenstein Library. Um, so that was fun to find. Um, finding the maps was a great thing too. That I have a chapter on mapping when when it just struck me how many circles there are on on maps of Chicago and how odd it is because I couldn't actually draw circles around any city I've lived in and so just noticing, wait, there's circles everywhere and these circles have been abstracted into theories of urban growth and yet they don't actually apply to Chicago in the past or any city in the present. That was fun. Um, and then sometimes it was reading now neglected fiction, like with the procession, that really helped me see what the city felt like. And then drawing the connections between the social realist authors and the social workers who were walking down the same streets. So this isn't quite an archival moment, but it's, I come from American studies, but I think urban history too, is just so interdisciplinary and being able to say like, wait, those of you in English departments who read the jungle and those of you in geography departments who look at Samuel Avery Gross's ads, you should talk to each other. Had so you read the jungle before working I on it? Because um, I was struck, I mean, one of the things that comes up in the book is that how much the jungle is about real estate. I had already read The Jungle in high school, a high school history class, like so many people do. And, you know, I remembered the person falling into the vat and turning into sausage, you know, that, and that's what I remembered from The Jungle. Um, and I also remember being a little bewildered. That opening scene of the wedding felt like it went on and on and on. And I didn't quite understand why that was in there. So then when I got interested in Samuel Eberly Gross's ad, I went back and reread The Jungle and realized, oh, this is a story about consumption. And that wedding scene is all about consumer culture. And so much of the the first half of the book is about the struggle to pay for the home. And when they lose the home, it's a turning point to the book. The family entirely falls apart. It, it is this sort of 
idea that that bricks hold a family together. And Upton Sinclair famously lamented that his book didn't help turn people to socialism. But if you read his book, well, of course not, because it was all about the right to buy a home and how you hold on to a home. Um, so it did take rereading for me to even notice that. But I have to say that now that I teach in Orange County with a lot of students whose families sometimes struggle to hold on to homes, they notice this without me having to point it out to them. The buying the home and losing the home strikes a chord with people who've gone through the recent Great Recession in a way that I hadn't noticed growing up in the 80s. In one of the early chapters, I quote one of the early boosters who was saying that in 1830s Chicago, every man who owned a garden patch stood on his head and imagined himself a millionaire because property values were going up so rapidly. And I love that image because, of course, when you do a headstand, you fall over eventually. <laughs> and so these people toppled. And the, the rates of foreclosures were really, really high. And I don't ever get to firm numbers, but I did. This is another great archival moment. I found the records of the Building and Loan Associations. Once I figured out that access to credit is really important for housing and it was important for workers, they couldn't access credit through mainstream banks. So they sometimes got credit from builders themselves, but those were really difficult loans to pay back. And if you missed one payment, you forfeited the whole house. That's that's the plot of the jungle. But the other way that people access credit was through what we would now call immigrant micro lending societies that were called building and loan associations. And I think the foreclosure rate might have been as high as 40% for the workers. On the foreclosure section of your book, I found really fascinating and compelling because it's almost the prehistory to the exploitative practices that Beryl Satter talks about. Yes. Family properties. And it's like all of these previous practices of the expropriation of working people get loaded onto African-Americans by the post-war years because of how FHA moves in and doesn't move into certain neighborhoods. So it's the kind of concentration of those practices into the particular exploitation of African-Americans that is one kind of implication of your book. Yes, yes, it is. And I keep meaning to write Burl Satter a note. I, I don't know her at all, but I love her work. And I love the way it really illustrates the personal stakes of what access to credit means. The white ethnic immigrants moved in at a time when you could found your own bank, when there, there weren't yet a lot of yeah. rules. And so they managed to find other sources of credit eventually. Blacks came to Chicago later and they couldn't find alternative sources of credit. There was also changing ideas about property values. And that was the other thing of figuring out the first textbook of real estate appraisal was written in Chicago and getting to read these old textbooks and to see how their ideas actually evolved about how you value property and whether a suburb is valuable or not. These are fascinating things that they were still figuring out. And so that's part of how I reread the riots of 1919 as riots partly about property, which isn't a typical way to read it, but I don't see people fighting at places of work. I see people fighting over parks and houses and that it's over residential spaces. And it's because the place they were fighting is the same space that Samuel Eberly Groves advertises the working man's reward. So it comes full circle in my book to this riot that we now think of as an urban riot that was actually trying to preserve a formerly suburban space as an all white space. Usually the 1919 riots are the place where books began. I was thinking of Arnold Hirsch or Liz Cohen, and this is the ending point, but to sort of think about this as a contestation over space, sort of just radically reperiodizes how we think about both Chicago and then also urban history. I um, hope so. 
Although I have to admit, I, I intended, my dissertation proposal said I would stop in 1919, you know, because you have to stop somewhere. But I couldn't resist all the people reading in the 20s and the 30s. Once once you start to get the real textbooks of real estate and you start to get all of those dissertations and all those new ideas about property, I just couldn't stop in 1919 because things did keep changing. And the 1930s are a turning point because things hardened much more later on in the century. One thing I was struck by in your discussions of the summers you spent in Chicago um, was, did you go to this location of working man's reward? And is it still there? Can we see the remnants of the the spaces that you talk about today in Chicago's urban form? Not much. Um, there's been There's been a lot of change in a lot of those places, but the places that were classed as working class are still working class, although now they're Latino working class and Asian class. When you when you go to the location where the stockyards were, it's actually just open, empty lots. They they preserve the old gates and the, there's a few little signs about the, the fame of the stockyards, but the houses aren't there at all. When you go a little further to suburbs like Pullman, those places are actually... Uh, desirable places to live now that when I talked to residents about it, though, they didn't quite see themselves as this famous town. They, they would tell me about interesting stories about prohibition and Al Capone and, you know, the Chicagoans public memory often often goes back to the 30s and, and not deeper. They didn't know about the strikes that had happened there. And they didn't know about things that had happened in the physical space. A lot of the places that Samuel Eberly Gross built, he was generally a terrific marketer, but he had the really bad taste to name things after himself. So there was, there was, a, <laughs> there was a Gross Avenue and a Gross Dale and a Gross Village. And all of those places eventually got together and changed their names. That's shocking. So, yeah, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> really, who doesn't want to live on Gross Avenue in Grossdale? <laughs> so, especially because he died in disgrace after late in life marrying a teenager and you know going bankrupt. But so those places they don't have a lot of memory. But you can still see the different spaces. The places that were elite suburbs early on have very much preserved some of their elitism, and the places that were less elite are still places for more humble homeownership. It's still a really hard city to get your head around. And those boundaries between cities still mean something to the people who live there. So, Elaine, in the process of finishing the book, of kind of moving from dissertation to book, you moved from New Haven uh, to Diego, <laughs> where you live, where you live today. How did that pretty dramatic shift in your daily experience at Urban Form, did it shape the way you revised the book from dissertation? That's a great question. Um, I know that teaching shaped how I revised the book because, you know, as a teacher, you see how many ways students can misunderstand a book, you know? <laughs> and so, it made me clarify my writing. In graduate school, we were taught to problematize everything and also to scorn the word problematize. But, you know, I saw the nuance in everything and I was very timid about actually any of my own conclusions because everything just seems so tenuous, you know. Once I started teaching, I realized sometimes you just got to tell people what you think. So teaching definitely made me clarify my writing. Living in Orange County made me think more about homeownership and credit and commutes because I have a ridiculously long commute. But the other thing that changed, and I guess I should have answered when you asked what inspired me, like a lot of urban historians, 
am someone who bicycles a lot. Mm-hmm. And bicycling was, it was what I did after my first year of grad school because I arrived in grad school and I had no idea what I was going to specialize in. So we went around, you know, the first day, get to know the, your new cohort. And I heard what everybody else was studying. I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, someone was studying colonial hair, wigs especially. <laughs> and I, I didn't know that I was supposed to have chosen something that specific. And I knew I wasn't interested in colonial wigs, but I didn't really know what I was interested in. So I, I kind of got through that first year and then I biked away from New Haven. I biked <laughs> up through... Uh, through Connecticut Central Valley, through Massachusetts to Vermont, and just needing some silence and and to try to figure out what I was gonna do with all this new information, all this new ideas. And I returned home thinking I figured out nothing. But later I realized that when, when you bike, you bike on the old post roads, you bike on the ways people used to ride their horses. And that bike ride led me through suburb after suburb after suburb with no herb in sight. You know, and you couldn't quite figure out why this space is residential and this space is agricultural and and, and this one has terrible traffic and this one has beautiful roads. And just trying to understand the landscape you bike through is something I've talked to others, Brad Hunt, Sandy Zip, a lot of other urban historians I know are also people who bike far too much than is good for us. And biking makes us think about the landscape and its history, sort of in the way J.B. Jackson said that walking can make us think about landscapes. So moving to Orange County, I ended up biking less because it's harder to bike just to get to work. You know, people bike here, but they bike in in full on Lycra on their thousand dollar bikes. And so for a while I lost the biking and instead I was driving and just looking around this different area and also buying my first house and, and then having kids. And so all of that changed how I think about communities and spaces and, and home ownership. But I'm not sure how much it really changed. I think a lot of my ideas had been formed from being in New Haven and from biking. Well, I found one of the things that was really fascinating about the book was the question around the tenuousness of homeownership. But also another thing that that I think would speak to students and I guess spoke to me was about speculation and how much of this this was sort of imagined and a deliberate process. And I think unlike many of the other books about early suburbanization and particularly economic diversity, which have shown a much more random process, I was really surprised with Chicago how deliberate that was. And I was wondering just your experiences sort of getting into the mindset of the boosters themselves, which is another thing that I think the book does very brilliantly is to sort of understand how boosters think about space. I'm not sure I'm in the mindset of anyone, but but I think I I love Chicago's boosters. They're just so fascinating that they wrote poems about boosting the city and boosting your block and boosting your road and how many of the Chicagoans were boosters. That really fascinated me too. It's it's Robin Einhorn who who did the math and figured out that 70% of the government figures were also real estate boosters. That is amazing. So I think that this comes because I'm an urban historian, but I'm also a cultural historian. And so sometimes urban historians just deal with with the maps and the hard data. But for me, I'm really drawn to the novels and the pictures and the booster poems. And so these things helped me understand the city because I saw various Chicagoans trying to understand their own city. And it was doubling in size every decade for a very long time. So there was a lot to try to understand. So I guess I have a lot of empathy for them. And I am I also have so much awe that 
almost everybody seems to have been investing in real estate. As they, in every Chicago novel, every character has some real estate investment interest going on. Um, but it's not just in the novels. The newspapers said even seamstresses do it. The social workers said that in the back of the yards, the home ownership rate was 95%. One thing I was really struck by in the book was your effort to bring together both the top down and the bottom up. And I was wondering how you went about doing that. I think that question gets to one of the challenges for all of us, because most of the archival sources are things that will show you the past from a top-down perspective. And trying to get to a bottom-up perspective is a challenge we all have. And sometimes it's the Sanborn fire maps that will tell you, but in Chicago, it's also the social workers who will tell you and the newspaper photographers and oddly the novelists in different ways. So yet trying to get those different perspectives was one of my largest goals because I began with the suburbs were a conspiracy. The first chapter I wrote was the one about the fire where after the fire, the immigrant alderman erected barracks to house all these homeless people, you know, the obvious thing to do. But then the native born elites took over the disbursement of fire relief funds and decided barracks are terrible and immoral and unhealthy and, and just going to be awful for our city. And so they tore down the barracks, even though it was a cold winter, even though thousands of people were homeless. And they had this great effort to build single family houses that I found really, really fascinating. And that tied into a lot of things I had read in Paul Groth's book and, and that made me see suburbs are a conspiracy. And so that was where I began. But then I saw, no, the workers themselves want suburbs too. That, that same winter, they stormed City Hall because they were protesting what we now, I call early zoning ordinance, ordinances that would have pushed them out of town that back then were called fire limits. So the different sources in Chicago let you see workers weren't dupes they, they, and they weren't just passive. They weren't following along with some elite conspiracy. They had their own reasons for wanting houses. But some of those reasons tended to coincide with the elites, that they did not want to be a, what they called a proletariat. They, they wanted to access this American dream and this, this respectability that they thought came with domesticity. And that's when reading the foreign language press gets fascinating because they were throwing slurs at each other. You know, the Lithuanian press says those Poles, they don't really own homes. And the Poles are saying, oh, those Lithuanians. And, and to see that, well, homeownership meant something to both the Poles and the Lithuanians. It gets really, really interesting. So living in the sort of quintessential and driving through the quintessential sub suburban space and suburban sprawl of Orange County and working on your book, I was wondering if you see alternatives to the contemporary suburban form and what we can learn from your book about alternative ways of organizing urban space. So I knew I wasn't going to write about colonial hairdos. And so I was sitting there around the seminar table like a deer in the headlights. And the answer I came up with was, I'm fascinated by the turn of the century because I feel like before 1890, America looks so very different. And in the turn of the 20th century, people made a lot of choices that we now have naturalized. I, I doubt I expressed that this well back then. But when we start to look back in the 19th century, we can see exactly what those choices were because it isn't natural that we live in single family homes. It isn't natural that we commute long distances to our jobs. And it isn't natural that we live in residential spaces that are separate from retail spaces that are separate from small business. All the kinds of small businesses that existed in the suburb I grew up with but existed sort of under the table. Nobody mentions that she's renting out her house and he's got a small business. All those alternatives, I think, have 
only grown more visible in the last 10 years because people are struggling to pay for houses. So now they you know, turn their spare room into an Airbnb room. The ways that Chicago had non-binary race relations that slowly turned into a binary, whites own property and blacks don't, that, that got established in Chicago. But I think it's getting threatened now because new immigrants resist those binaries. So there's Great new work about gentrification, about people moving into spaces that aren't typical suburbs, and also about the way that typical suburbs aren't used as typical suburbs. And I feel like all of those alternatives are sometimes coming full circle. Public housing was erected to do what the 19th century reformers wanted, but now we know that mega block public housing didn't work. Now we're tearing it down and trying to get suburban style public housing. So we're getting alternatives, some of which are going back to the past in ways they're not even aware they're going back to the past, but they are. Tell us what you're working on uh, now. What's your next project? Well, my next project, I did get drawn um, in, into that vortex of post-1945 history. And, and I got drawn to Southern California. I, I got really curious about what my students don't know about their own past and the ways that the new social history, which isn't even that new, it's a half century old now, it didn't seem to have trickled down to my students. I was just shocked the number of my students who didn't know about Japanese internment, even though it happened right here. And I was shocked the way my students, they could name the big four railroad barons, but they couldn't tell you who worked on the railroads. Even though most of my students were at Cal State University, a lot of them are first generation college students, their ancestors worked on the railroads. And that they didn't know that to me was interesting. So I started looking in to, uh, to ways Californians remember their past. And it is still a project of urban history because I feel like suburban politics are often school politics. You know, from the housewives in New York who really fought to get liberal books in their libraries in the 1950s to uh, to Andrew Ross's book about Celebration Florida, where, where people in, in Disney's subdivision gave up so much power over their space, but insisted on having power over their schools. I feel like a lot of, of suburbs are about reproducing your class status in your children, and it ends up becoming school politics. So my new project looks at the school politics in Orange County and Los Angeles's suburbs in the 1960s, because it turns out they did get the new social history for just a few brief years. This great liberal textbook called Land of the Free, it was the required textbook for eighth graders in California from 1968 through the early 70s. And it caused an uproar. There were so many people who committed civil disobedience. They refused to send their children to school where the book was being taught. Schools courted losing all their funding by not teaching the book because they were furious that it had a chapter about workers and it had chapters about immigrants. And it discussed the way America has not always lived up to its promise of freedom for all. Things that we now think of as sort of mainstream liberal things, but it, it was just also this deeply thoughtful textbook that, that has gotten forgotten and that the fight against the textbook actually helped consolidate the same group who tried to get Goldwater elected and then got Nixon and Reagan elected. And it was almost all women too. I, I have a collection of their letters in protest. And as far as I can tell, almost 90% of the letters were written by women. So these, these women who thought they weren't being political because they were just involved with their kids' school, and that's not politics. They got incredibly involved in mass organizing in Southern California's suburbs. They called it an integrated textbook because it included African-Americans, and the places that fought it most were the places like Downey and Pasadena that border on African-American neighborhoods and were fighting very much in the 60s and 70s to keep African-Americans out of their schools. And it just fascinates me that real integration and the integration of our history books was related somehow in these people's minds and that 
caused this incredible social movement of the new right to form. It sounds terrific and particularly timely given the discussions around the AP framework that have been yes. dominating the news recently. So it's a, per a perennially important topic. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Elaine Lewinick is a professor of American studies at California State University Fullerton. Her new book is The Working Man's Reward, Chicago's Early Suburbs and the Roots of American Sprawl. This is the Urban Historians Podcast. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is sponsored by the Urban History Association and is produced by Rachel Guberman and edited by Dale Winling. Join us next month for more conversation about urban history. Chicago is where the woman downstairs starved herself to death.